0: Project radio broadcast on the Inside Lens Network. We have programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides, suspicious deaths, and other topics of interest to our audience. My name is not Denny Griffin. <laughs> Denny um, is running a little late, but he he will be here shortly. But I'm Delilah Jones of Imagine Publicity, the, the sidekick and co-host of this particular podcast. Um, Our guests today are Jen Padden and Peter Hyatt of the Cold Case Review Panel. Jen completed her Master of Science degree in psychology from the University of Roehampton in London, England. Her dissertation research focused on the social psychosocial development of serial sexual murders, which has been her main interest since beginning her undergraduate degree. Jennifer was a licensed private investigator in Ontario, Canada for 10 years and opened her investigative business in 2009. Since that time, her practice has been focused on sexual homicides, equivocal death analysis, and cold case reviews. She has completed specialized training in various areas of forensics and psychology, including criminal behavior analysis, the investigation of sexually violent offenders, and manner of death determination. Jennifer has also worked as a sexual assault counselor and has many spent many years working with victims and their families. She believes that everyone deserves justice and has enjoyed being able to provide pro bono services to individuals who are fighting to have their cases resolved and Peter hyatt um, Peter is a statement and analyst and instructor who teaches statement analysis and analytical interviewing to law enforcement and corporate America. He has authored the investigator training manual for DHHS, the state of Maine, as well as the book, Wise as a Serpent, Gentle as a Dove. He has been interviewed, pardon me, extensively on radio and television, including ABC's 2020, the National nationally televised program, Crime Watch Daily, and Taken Too Soon. The Caitlin Markham Story documentary is another program that he was on. um, And with Richard Hall, he gave extensive information into the disappearance of Madeline McCann. Peter leads a team of professional investigators from across the U.S., Canada, and Western Europe in solving both live and cold cases. His website is Hyatt Analysis Services and it's at HyattAnalysis.com Wow. (laughs) Welcome to the show both of you and um, I'm going to begin with Jen. Please tell our audience about the cold case review panel and how it came into being.
1: Um. Yeah, so when I just finished my master's degree recently, um, top of my priority list was to be able to set up a group of cold case review um, professionals that would be able to take a pro bono look at cases for families. So what we're really doing is um, gathering, you know, the necessary um, information, police reports, autopsy reports, and we're just doing a complete review of the case so we can look at it and say, well, what were the things that the investigation got right and maybe we could find something here to follow up with? What was something that maybe the investigation missed? And then we can offer a list of recommendations, whether that goes back to the original investigating police department, or it goes on to another agency or a private investigator. Um, But just something so that the families then have, you know, kind of this framework or synopsis of the case that they're able to get out there and hopefully get them some more attention and make it easy for people who might be able to help them with the actual investigation part, see what what, what might be needed.
2: Because I usually call her a couple
1: times a week or at least once a week, you know, she's up north. hello hello <laughs>
0: hello oh, sorry about that um i my question Jen to Jen is with your work with the transparency project and the cold case review panel and I'm understanding you correctly that this review reviews the cases at no cost to the families, correct That's
1: right. it's the review of the case uh um, You know, we'll we'll usually have a recommendation for further investigation, and at that point it's up to the family to take it to um, a police department or to hire an investigator of their own. So we do the review, kind of get everything in order for them, and that is all at no cost to the family.
0: Okay, so I might put in here at this point that the cold case review panel and the transparency project as a whole we do not solve cases. We do not necessarily, I don't know if investigate is the correct word, but like you said, we basically review what you have, if we can put some new eyes to it, come up with some suggestions, and then that's, you know, the report that we give back to the families, correct? Yes, absolutely. And I see our our esteemed host has arrived. Denny? Are you here? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And I Hi Jen. Let... Hi Peter. <laughs> Good Good I will let you kind of take over the reins. We are. You. I don't know how long you've been on the line, but we are into the discussion.
3: Yes, I've uh, I've actually been with you just since uh, your introduction. So I, I know pretty much where we're at. <laughs> uh, and. Thank you, thank you, Jen, for for that information. And Peter, I'd like to ask you if uh, I could. If can you educate us as to what statement analysis is and how it applies to investigating cases?
2: Well, statement analysis is the uh, ability to discern deception uh, as well as veracity within a statement. Um, this could be an interview. This could be a a written statement by a subject. Um, And so we're able to not only tell with a very high level of certainty whether someone is being deceptive, and generally that means withholding information, but we're also able to provide for the investigator or the one conducting the interview or the interrogation, what specific areas to explore and um, what strategies within his own tactical work to take in an investigation.
3: Now, would it it be safe to say, Peter, that uh, as an investigative tool, that statement analysis is somewhat maybe of a cousin to a polygraph? I mean, uh, polygraphs also look for deception and so forth. So are are they similar in that regard?
2: Very much so. Um, I have a great deal of confidence in the polygraph, and it is my belief that if the polygraph examiner uses the subject's own language, it's basically foolproof. And that but the key is and that's part of analytical interviewing is that we don't interpret one's words because that that's how a deceptive person can beat a, a polygraph is by um, yeah. using a different language than the questions that are posed to him. And we have a, a very famous example that um, listeners will be familiar with, with um President Clinton, when he said, "I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky," it is my belief that had he been asked, "Did you have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky?" and he answered, "No," that he would have passed his polygraph because his definition of sexual relations is different than most people, and he was he was quite firm on that. If he was asked, "Did you have sexual contact?" so that pre-screening interview is critical for a polygraph examiner to listen very carefully and use only the words the subject uses to describe the event. And at that point, Danny, I, I don't think anyone can beat a polygraph, no matter – I know it doesn't sound very good for Hollywood or for conspiracy theorists, but the polygraph is a, is a terrific tool. In statement analysis, what we're doing is also looking for content. So it's not simply a pass-fail um, oftentimes it can be complicated where someone may not have committed that crime, but they committed an attendant crime. And so that can be picked up. So it's very sensitive to listen to the language of someone and to know whether or not they're withholding information and what areas, what topics for the interviewer to explore.
3: And Peter, uh, if I'm correct, a statement analyst can not only analyze a written statement, but also verbal statements. for example, if you had a, a recording of, let's say, a 911 call, or a recording of, a, of an interview, someone or an interrogation that someone did, uh, you, you can, in, you can, or your analyst can analyze both of those, either the, the document or the actual uh, phone call, the actual verbal discussion.
2: It's always best to get the transcript of the verbal, the discourse analysis, but, yeah, they they can do that, not the same level of depth. It's interesting that you mentioned the 911 call. Years ago in Georgia, uh, I was doing a seminar, and I I thought it was going quite well. And um, I think it was on day two in the morning on the first coffee break, a cold-case investigator asked me if I would – um, take a look at a 911 call of a homicide that he just didn't feel right about. And, Danny, a lot of the cold case investigators um, seem to have a personality trait, a type of tenaciousness, besides a, a general inquisitiveness, where they, they're they not quick to accept an answer. They They like to be thorough with that, and they like to double look and triple look and then have someone look over their own shoulders as they're doing this. And so I said, yeah, um, I'll do that when I get back home to Maine. Um, And he said, oh, it's only a two-minute call or a three-minute call. And I said, yeah, that that might be good six hours of of analysis to to dig out of that. Um, But the hosting captain insisted that we do it on the spot. And um, he had made copies of the transcript and had the audio to play for uh, these very experienced investigators, a particular number of them, homicide ones. And the case was interesting. It was a man who came home from work, found his girlfriend and her seven-year-old son dead in an apparent murder-suicide. And the only thing the cold case investigator really had to go on besides um, kind of a keen eye with a blood spatter and that sort of thing and the, the forensics of the case, but was the 911 call, and he didn't like it. Well, the, the two investigators interviewed him, and took the evidence, and they were satisfied that the mother had killed her seven-year-old son and killed herself. The medical examiner was satisfied with that, and the district attorney was too, and the case was closed. They, they, uh, he, In fact, the, the subject passed his polygraph, that he was at work and that sort of thing. So I agreed to look at it somewhat against my will with the entire class, which derailed our The training program I had set up for them, but proved to be uh, quite fruitful, and as we went through it, the subject did not tell a single lie in his call to 911, in terms of opening his mouth and actually fabricating reality. He didn't do that, but he was withholding information, and so I had said at the end um, that he is a killer. And that I was certain of it, and there wasn't a single dissenting opinion, as we went through the whole thing, and it took a couple hours, from the investigators. So the cold case investigator was enthused because of this. Um, he's a man that, he's like an old salt. He, he's, he's very good at what he does, and he has a very strong sense of justice. Typical DNA of, a, of law enforcement. He wanted justice. And he had said, though, that the district attorney will not reopen the case unless the medical examiner is willing to change his findings um, from the murder-suicide to homicide undetermined. And would I be willing to send him uh, an analytical report of the 911 call, because that's all we have to go on. And I did, and the medical examiner felt it made sense that he could see that yeah there's deception here and it's about the deception is about the time period of finding the bodies and and possibly even motive because that's we we were able to pull out his motive from this as well so he said yeah i'll reclassify it and he sent it over to the district attorney district attorney reopened the case the original investigators were not pleased and that's that's not a normal reaction for most investigators. Most investigators are so driven on justice that they they care little where it comes from, and if there's any correction that needs to be made, they're, they're often quite pleased about that for the sake of justice. Well, they we reopened the case and listed out a, a a proper way to interview the subject, and he was convicted. They have a, a Somewhat of a recording of him speaking to his son in the jailhouse, which is uh, close to an admission of guilt. Anyway, at least the, the son recognizes it as such. But he was able to get justice for an elderly woman who said she was tormented by the fact that people thought her daughter was a killer, a baby killer, you know, a seven-year-old little boy, and she she knew her daughter wasn't. And her gratitude towards the investigator, the cold case investigator. Um, was very touching. And so when he spoke in this short 911 call, he showed indication after indication that he was withholding information. So he technically didn't lie, but he did deceive by that keeping back of critical information. And there were a few things that that slipped out of his mouth that that shouldn't have, um, that we were able to pick up on. One of them was that uh, two people just killed themselves in my house. And I thought it strange that he's blaming the victims, two people. One of them is seven, of whom he can't use the little boy's name. And we generally don't expect any to hear my house when there's a a dead body inside. It's it's the house. So I didn't know at the time, but it bothered me a great deal. And I I said this to to the investigators. I don't like that he's claiming the house. You know, We have to look into that. So as it turned out, he had been homeless. The subject had been homeless before, had a history of domestic violence, a history of at least alleged child abuse. He hated the little boy. But more than anything, that he had been pushing his girlfriend to put him on the title deed of the house. And he had once said, I will never let a woman make me homeless again because he'd been put out before. When she refused, it was as if she signed her death warrant. And that's what he acted upon. So we were able to obtain justice. Go ahead, Denny.
3: I was just going to say, that this is certainly fascinating, and and thank God you were able to detect what you did and and get justice. But I'm just uh, wondering, I guess a rhetorical question is, how many cases similar to the one you just described for us happen where there is no statement analysis and and a case is closed out as a suicide or an accident, whatever, and nobody further or nobody goes that extra step, such as uh, your analysis, to detect these things? It, it uh, I, I find that very troublesome. I, I fear that that happens more often than we would like to think.
2: I can give you some good news on that front, um, or at least good news for listeners. There are some pretty high estimates of closed cold cases that suggest that where a department can find the time, that inside those files are actually pronoun, we call them pronoun confessions or pronoun admissions where someone takes ownership of a crime or ownership of a deception verbally, and it's in those interviews. So if if they do have time, and, and more and more departments are, are getting some really fine training with this, and, um, and I know that we're under a, a cloud right now with the, the uh, anti-police movement within the politics, but these professional men and women, um, they like to dig deep. And so wherever time allows, They're going for that. But knowing that we may have stuff in that file, if if those original interviews have been preserved, uh, it's almost to to the point where I can say to the cold case investigator, if that person did it, we'll know. So if they have the interview, whether it's recorded or transcribed, we'll we'll transcribe it. We'll know, most likely. And there's there's always exceptions to that.
3: That is encouraging, Peter. (laughs) It's nice to get some some positive news. Uh, Jen, regarding the cold case review panel, now you've had, uh, I I don't know how many, but I'm sure you've had several submissions so far since the creation of the panel. And how are things going? Are are you getting cases that are uh, workable, uh, you know, as, as far as reviewing them goes? that you're able to review or are people able to come up with the, uh, the information you need you and your, your, uh, your cohorts to, to do uh, a good uh, review of the case or are you having problems getting information?
1: Um, I've had a mix. We've had a few submissions where unfortunately people didn't have um, the required information together, you know, which is, All outlined on the transparency project site. Um, And we asked them um, to provide police report uh, with crime scene photo, autopsy report with photo, toxicology report, any other opinions from experts, um, and then the family's own summary of of what's gone on. And I mean, the reason. That it's so important that they come to us with all that information is because we just simply don't have the time or manpower to be tracking it all down um and something this is something with that the transparency project though has always been great with helping families figure out um you know exactly how the freedom of information act um stuff works that they're able to get these records but we have had quite a few cases um come through i've been working constantly. Um, um plenty of them coming through that um that have enough information. Um we've had a couple that we've um sent to statement analysis with Peter and his group and that's been amazingly insightful. Um but yeah there's there's lots of both types of cases coming in.
3: Do you do you find uh, that what I have found for example, the, the case Peter was talking about with the uh, the murder suicide that wasn't, um, where people might want the CCRP to do a review, but mainly have hunches. Uh, what I'm what I'm trying to say is, they think the deceased, uh, let's say it's the son or daughter, you know, would not have killed him or herself. They're 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 confident in their own mind that that didn't happen, that it was uh, some foul play involved. But they don't have anything of an evidentiary value. It's just a gut feeling or a hunch. Do you ever encounter that where someone might ask you to do something and they don't really have uh, much for you to work with? Uh, It's tough to review a hunch. You actually need more than that, don't you?
1: Well, a lot of the times when they come to us, it's, the family member, and yes, they have a hunch. They say this was ruled a suicide, but there's no way, you know, my daughter was in the best, you know, position she's been in in life and so happy and this sort of thing. And I think one of the problems is that a lot of police departments um, don't have the resources to have, a full investigation done with access to um psych experts and that sort of thing you know i might have someone come to me and say oh well the police said it was a suicide my daughter had suicide attempts two years ago and three years ago but since then you know she's been um very high functioning no mood issues she's got a home or got a new job and everything seems good so What I can do then is go through, um, you know, what we would classify as suicidal risk factors or risk markers. And a lot of time it's not as black and white maybe as the police might have learned in their training. Um, And they just really don't have the access to outside resources um, or the psychological knowledge themselves to be able to interpret it. And, you know, I've, I've been seeing this now with Cases particularly involving social media, um, and it seems like the way that young adults in particular express themselves, it's it's a bit more socially acceptable to talk about feeling down, um, to talk about feeling depressed, and this sort of thing. And so, you know, seeing them just message that to their friends certainly doesn't mean that because they were found dead that that they committed suicide um, and it really has to be you really have to look at the much bigger psychological picture and the entire psychosocial environment that this person is in to to you know try and make um, a more educated opinion about whether this a, a suicide would have been likely in this situation you know and then of course put that on top of you know you have to put that on top of your scene and your MA reports and anything else you can um and see how it all comes together but i think a lot of time that there is there is some stuff that we can do that the family thinks they just have a hunch but they're not aware of options that we have you know such as going through and doing a psych assessment or peter's group being able to do a statement analysis um which has been particularly helpful with 911 calls that we've taken and um you know as he was saying before you know, you might not say, oh, this person is guilty, this person, you know, absolutely killed the decedent, but they are withholding knowledge or they do have knowledge that they do not want to bring up. And that can be really helpful. It really it really can show you, you know, if you're kind of going in the right direction, it can kind of confirm a hunch. So it's it's been great to have that input.
3: Jen, as is, is part of your I'm sorry. Go ahead, Delilah.
0: Well, I was just going to bust in here, obviously, and I I wanted to ask (laughs) Jen or maybe you, you know, everybody to get into it. If you can, you know, for the benefit of those people out there who may have a cold case that they want to um, present to you, can you just give a brief walkthrough what the process is, what you expect to do, uh, what what the family can expect to get back from you and how to proceed forward with that information, just so that we have it lined out and all of the expectations and questions are answered.
1: Okay. So maybe I can just, I can let everyone know kind of what happens when the case arrives to me. And then Peter can explain what they do when I beg him for his help. <laughs> um so typically, the the family would send all the necessary files to me, and the first thing I'm going to do is just do, um, you know, basically like an overview um, look at what the investigation was like, um, and see, um, you know, what pops out to me. Um, you know, do we need to have um, a medical examiner um, opinion in in this? Is this something that looks like it might be helpful? Um, In the case of uh, suspicious death, I'm going to do the psychology of the decedent and then possibly the people around them. Um, There'll be a lot of back and forth with the family members um, asking um, for clarification or more details in certain areas and stuff. And then with the 911 calls or statements um, that possible suspects or witnesses have been given that we have um, audio or video for, um, I've been very often sending them to Peter to ask his group to have a look at them, and then maybe Peter is probably better to explain the kind of information they're able to provide for those type of cases.
2: Yeah, Jen does a, a, an A to Z, and we're a single letter. We're we're looking at um, words. We're, we're not reviewing forensic evidence and. Um, or medical examiner's reports, we're looking for truth and deception. And um, if someone, particularly in a 911 call or, or an uh, England 999 call, if someone has guilty knowledge while they're making that call, generally speaking, we'll, we'll get that. We'll find the location of it and know what type of questions to ask. Um, sometimes we do something that's called a, a psycholinguistic profile in which we are able to look at the words, and give a, a good snapshot of the person's dominant personality traits and maybe a good strategy for the interview itself. Um, we find excellent response from law enforcement. Most of the time we're doing statements on, on behalf of law enforcement. They've requested that we do that. But every so often it can be some troublesome um, and sometimes it's simply due to, to being Very, very busy and having too many cases and not enough funding. Um, Delilah, you may remember the case of Sheena Morris from uh, Florida uh, years ago. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, her boyfriend spoke on television, and that was not a difficult analysis. He was deceptive about what happened to her. He had guilty knowledge of what happened to her. Um, But that has not worked out for justice as of yet. And uh, I, sometimes with families, it can be very inflamed and, and the, the anger and the rage can, can be very difficult and have a terrible toll on their health. And it, it, it's rough. So um, obtaining justice is such a noble goal. People don't realize how it's not simply just the memory. It's the impact upon the victim's families uh, of knowing or at least believing. And then there are other cases where um the family is let down. Um, it didn't happen as they believed it did. And they it, they have to go through some difficult processing with that. Um, but I think we're making a dent. Um, you're familiar with Cheryl McCollum's work as well. Um, Cheryl is a tireless, crazy, crazy energy, marvelous personality with a great inquisitive mind and um, she's able to get a, a case to to go on um like the Nancy Gray show to highlight at that that program and other places where she can pull together people of different specialties and backgrounds and get something looked at and so you know i I'm, I'm seeing a um quite a lot of professionals that, that are willing to pull together and work on behalf of families in pursuing justice. So even though, like in my aspect and the team that I, I work with, um, we're you know one small detail that um, hopefully a, a, a detail that will be insightful. But I tip my hat to those that that do the A to Z work. It's difficult work. It's tiresome work, um, but it's noble work
0: and when do you find that there is a common thread throughout some of these cases in the sense of what are they lacking you know that that one ultimate clue or you know the one ultimate thing that could bring justice to that family and it just seems like there are so many people out there searching you know, for the same type of, of justice, like you mentioned in the Sheena Morris case, and and so many others, is there something that's common that that
2: needs to be fixed? That would put me right up on top of the soapbox about how we need to pay our law enforcement higher pay, more trainings, and, and more volume, and the the caseload that some of them carry. Um, Jen made a good point about the, the changing of culture and how, how young people will express themselves on social media. Because we always have to shift the language with the culture. We can't we can't analyze it like it's 1955. We speak differently. Um, well, in, in this sense, it can be very difficult for. Um, in, in that example. This subject has made a suicide attempt in 2017, a suicide attempt in 2019, and then um, a death in 2020. And so a busy law enforcement officer who ha- who investigates and wants justice, but has got this caseload backing up on him, may not have the time or the manpower to be able to look deeper. And that could be a missed opportunity. So I find, and, and, um, as is a team, that sometimes it's at the the request of law enforcement, but we always have maintained good relationships with them. Very rarely is there is there a disagreement because we're we're looking for the same goals, and so many of them are very thankful for the help, especially when we write out the the specific questions. This is what this is what you look for. This is this is where you go. This is his language. Use his language only. That sort of thing. So that can be a time saver. And that can can really help. And we have some excellent writers that are able to reduce the, um, the large magnitude of analysis down to a page or two. It's very helpful.
0: Denny, in the cases that you've worked with over the years, do you feel like there's a common thread?
3: Well, I've been involved most recently with the with the cases in which are thankfully a relatively small percentage, but of cases that may not have been properly investigated and where the investigators, unlike uh, the majority of them, like Peter said, are after the truth and after justice. I think every once in a while you run into some who, who don't share that, uh, that goal. And, if, if the investigation maybe has not been properly conducted or adequately conducted from the get-go, you get involved with uh, the the lack of enthusiasm for the agency, the handling agency, to cooperate, say, with an outside investigator, a civilian investigator, a civilian cold case investigator, uh, in the interest of possibly concealing uh, what may have been uh, – incompetence Uh, let's just call it that and how the investigation was conducted so I've been focusing primarily on those angles with the the smaller percentage of uh, of cases in which the investigations may not have been up to speed and what I found with those is what I think is a common thread is you have the the police for example Uh, decide what information will be released per FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request. Um, And there's what they call the open case exemption to FOIA. So if you file a FOIA request and the, uh, the case is still technically open, the police agency can decline to provide the reports or provide the information requested. And it's unfortunate, and again, in this small number of cases, that, if there is a ulterior motive, the agency to protect individual officers or protect the integrity or reputation of the department can decide that they're not going to close the case, they keep them open sometimes, but inactive for years and years and um but but they're always technically open so uh it, it it's a very frustrating thing, and I find that to be uh kind of like the the fox guarding the hen house and that the agency that may have something to hide is also the one that decides what can or can't be released. So that that's very annoying, and I find that in, in almost every case where there's a question about the quality and scope of the investigation, you, you run into this issue about the uh, inability to get records and, uh, and and try to get to the bottom of it. And, and uh, Jen was saying earlier that uh, if if the family, if the survivor of the victim – wants to conduct their own investigation or if they have the resources to hire a private investigator to, to proceed forward. Um, If you can't get information from the agency that handled the case, it certainly can,
2: uh, can
3: hamper the independent investigation or the outside investigation. So those things uh, are very bothersome to me. And I, I find that with almost every case where the, the, the investigation is being called into question, that is a common thread.
0: Thanks, Denny. Jen, do you have any input
1: there? Um, I think I'd have to go along with, you know, kind of what Denny was saying. And a lot of the time, the problem is for whatever reason, just an insufficient investigation to begin with. Um, and you can run into all kinds of problems. There could be evidence that you, you're never gonna get back. Um, you look at, you know, looking at cold cases, you have suspects or witnesses that could be dead by the time someone's actually digging into it um, and then having no way of figuring it out. Um, and, it, you know, and it causes a lot of problems because the um, surviving family members, um, then, you know, they're, they're left feeling like the police don't care or that they're purposefully not doing something about the investigation for whatever reason. I think once those relations between the family and the police department start to break down, then you're just causing more problems. And, you know, I think you'd be lucky if something got done. I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it would be as one of the family members to not take it personally um you know if the police don't want to release records to you or you know it seems like maybe you're not getting enough of um attention or time from them um but this is this is something i often try and explain to family members to say you know what you kind of you know just try to not take it personally right now and look at it objectively for a bit and then my first recommendation is always when we have a report ready with recommendations and an overview of the investigation, to take it straight back to the police department who first investigated and don't assume that they're going to just roll their eyes or not want to do anything. I mean, it's, of course, I've seen that happen, but um, I think it's better, always better to go back there. And if you can, you know, go back and try and repair that relationship and uh, they want to reinvestigate, then that's great because there's probably nobody better to do it. You know, they're the ones with all the firsthand information and everything that's needed.
3: Uh, Delilah, can I jump in here for a second? I I didn't want to do this, but I can't help myself. Uh, uh <laughs> Peter was involved in this case, uh, the Patrick-Russ case. Peter was involved several years, probably five or six years ago or longer, uh, doing some statement analysis on, on, uh, on some of the subjects in the, the Russ case. And Jen has been uh, involved with the case also. So they're, they are both, uh, and, and Jen more recently, uh, more familiar with, uh, with what's happened or hasn't happened in, in Patrick's case. And for anybody who's not familiar with it, uh, Patrick was a s- sergeant in the Army's 10th Mountain Division stationed out of Fort Drum in Watertown, New York. He disappeared from a local bar on uh, March 16, 2007, was never seen alive again as far as we know, uh and his skeletal remains were found exactly 6 months later a couple of miles outside of Watertown. At any rate, I, I got involved in uh, working with Patrick's mom back in 2010, and I've been so I'm starting my 11th year of involvement with that case, and it's uh, it's very frustrating. And Peter detected deception in in the statements that he analyzed back at that time. Uh, Jen, I think uh, I don't want to put her on the spot, but I, I, I think she may agree with me that there were some irregularities or or some problems with how the investigation was conducted by the uh, authorities. And this was a case that involved three different agencies. When Patrick went missing, the local police department had a missing person case. The army CID had an AWOL case. And then after the remains were found, the County Sheriff ended up with a death case. So we had several agencies involved. Um, And what, I've run into just recently with that is trying to get another agency with jurisdiction to take a look and review, basically review what the investigation uh, by the sheriff's department consisted of because it, it appears that uh, I believe substantial evidence that, that things were missed, things were not done and so forth. and, to only find that an agency, at least in New York state and several other states cannot come in just based on the request of the survivor, the survivor's family. They have to be invited in by the handling agency or the district attorney or an authorization from the state attorney general. And it's a real zoo. And the unfortunate thing that I found is it doesn't matter how much evidence has been collected to indicate there were problems with the investigation and that justice has not been done. That makes no difference. The point is it's, I guess, political correctness, big brother. You can't just come in and intervene in an investigation without, unless it's by invitation only. Uh, so I, I'm going to ask Jen uh, here, Jen, uh, you did an analysis uh, several years ago of of the yes. Rust case. And you've done a lot more on it recently. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm aware of that. Um, what would be the chances, because I, I think you have about all the information available that I know of, um, to do a, a CCRP report for Judy Rust. And I would like to have her have that report and any irregularities or suggestions that, that you find or found. Um to maybe go to the state police, for example, which would be the next agency of jurisdiction in the Russ case, and 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 you know, see if we can influence uh their thinking that, that maybe somebody should do something because right now the quote justice is being denied well, to Patrick, the deceased, and resolution is being denied to Judy because because nobody will take a second look, so i I don't know. What, what, do you think uh, the CCRP would be willing to do a report on the rust case, an updated report?:
1: Oh yeah, we could absolutely do that. and um you know i' i I understand your frustration with this. It just because it just it makes no sense to me that it's sitting with one police department who keeps saying they're going to do something and don't, and it's been years. I don't understand what is stopping them from just going ahead and asking the to stay, take a look at it. It, it, makes, it and, just makes no sense.
3: And do you, uh, Jen, the one thing I'm not sure of, did I send you the uh, Peters analysis or some of those statements? I don't remember if I did early on. If, if you don't have them, I can get them to you.
1: No, I don't have those.
3: I will send them to you later today.
1: Yeah, that would
3: be great. Okay, thank you. I got that off my chest, and I feel much better now. Thank you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think sometimes Um, early on, um, then it can be an issue of mistakes that are made, and then almost an unwillingness to address those mistakes. For example, there are some smaller departments that really struggle with their budgets, and um, can't do the interview training that is so necessary and so an early interview can be contaminated and the contamination can be not only not usable but the defendant or the at least the suspect now knows what to expect and what to respond to including not interviewing again so the, the mistakes early on can be costly perhaps a, a bit of optimism with this is that um, people do move on, and they sometimes leave departments and go to other departments. And then the fresh eyes take a look at a case, and all of a sudden we find some willingness and um, work mm-hmm. with them, and it can be it, it can work out.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was I'm the optimist of the group today. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's good. We need optimism. Uh, but yes. uh, as you were talking, you know, I was thinking that uh, going back to Russ for a minute. Some of these, uh, uh, well, potential witnesses or persons of interest, if you will, that were never interviewed or never interviewed by the civilian law enforcement. Uh, I'm just thinking that that now, after 13 years have passed, uh, and these people are no longer serving together and that type of thing, you know, maybe that, uh, that there would still be some hope that if if they were talked to even now, that they wouldn't have the uh, the connections or the loyalties to each other that they may have had 13 years ago. So from that perspective, uh, uh, you know, maybe interviewing even at this late date could possibly bear fruit.
1: not only is is that an excellent point. (laughs) Sorry, Peter, go
2: go ahead. That's okay. Not only is it an excellent point within itself, but also with um, male witnesses, you know, if if, let's say they went on to non criminal activity that they lived a, a normal decent life after that as they age and as the hormone levels fall as testosterone falls um there can be a type of sobriety a, a mental sobriety that enters into them in maturity where they also want justice and they don't feel the same way they did as you mentioned you know 13 years ago in terms of the loyalties or the defensive posturing so that can work to our advantage um it takes a, a certain amount of strength to resist an interview and an investigation um, for positive or, or for negative. In and, and this case, it, uh, it's my belief that it's negative. That can wear down with age. The exception, this is why I mentioned criminal activity, the exception would be someone who becomes more and more hardened and desensitized to uh, human suffering, including duties, because of criminal activity. That's different, or or a, a certain personality traits that will not embrace human empathy. They just they can't. But generally speaking, Denny, we find that as they get older and they they want to come to terms with regret of what they did, or even what they didn't do, or didn't cooperate when they were younger, and that can work to our advantage.
3: Excellent yeah, points and a reason hope.
1: Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, with cold cases, you know, you've got time is against you in one way with deterioration of physical evidence or, you know, stuff that's just not available anymore. But in another sense, when it, goes, when it comes to re-interviewing people, you know, loyalties change, allegiances change, you never know who's going to say, wow, you know what, I've actually been wondering if someone would ever come and talk
3: to me again about
2: this. Great point.
3: what do you what do you think Delilah?
0: I think we have something going on here <laughs> um i I would just like to see families be able to be in a position to take advantage of this review panel um, of experts. Jen, maybe you can go through who all is involved in this under your leadership
1: um so right now it's uh we have myself peter and his team of analysts um bill sullivan um who spent many years as a coroner um and we have a new junior consultant who just finished an internship with us and she has uh just graduated with her bachelor's degree in criminology and psychology so she's helping me out on my end with a bunch of stuff well first of all getting finals organized and all that type of thing that could be time consuming. And then um also going through the, the overviews of the investigation.
0: So we have a, a very experienced and and pan a very experienced panel of experts that are available. So you know, if if you're out there listening today, um and you have a case that needs review and you have nowhere else to go, come and go to the transparencyprojects.com and there is a process, correct? There's a process that people need to go through as far as kind of an application, would you call it?
1: Yep. It's all um, right on the website. Um, it tells them exactly what information we need. It tells them what we can do. Um, you know, the answers that we can give them Um who's available on the panel tells me what we can't do, such as going on to actually do the investigation for the case. Um, And it also will have um, a form um, that they have to sign that they understand certain things, you know, that it's their responsibility to gather material, um, our evaluation is based on material. And maybe one other thing that's in there um, is that yeah we we have a policy of not commenting on um why a case went wrong as far as um, things such as uh, police misconduct or you know we we don't speculate about about those kind of things. We look at the actual investigation and what should have been done, what was done, what needs to be done um and then as far as offering opinions about why that stuff hasn't been done, that's not up to us. We, we'll stay away from that. Um, but yeah, everything is right there um, on the on the website for it. Um, and then oh, one other thing that families often ask me about, you know, is when they do get the report, they'll often ask, you know, oh, can I send this to this person or that person? Once they get the report, it is theirs. It's their property. They can do whatever they want and send it to whoever they want.
3: Jen, do you you keep these these cases uh, that that you review, are they kept on file for a period of time? I'm just thinking if, uh, if, for example, if the survivor or the requester came up with new information or something and and that that might might affect your previous report. Uh, is that something you keep on file where you, you could entertain new information or even take a second look if there's there's something uh, some new development?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Everything is kept for well. I've never thrown out a case file so far, so I don't I don't know if I'll start one day. Um, but they they are all kept and I think any of us um, on the panel would be very happy to. To go back and consider any new information that might come to us, and uh, and alter our opinion, you know, if if we need to, because the evaluation is based on the material we have, and if there's new material that might change our opinions, then yeah, I would say, of course, of course, we're going to take a look
3: at it. Now, now are you looking? or have any need for more volunteers for the panel or or are you kind of where you want to be? And then if if there's a specific uh, expert you need in a particular area, you would just try to locate one for that particular case? Or do you, do you want more people on, uh, I don't know if on staff is the right word, but on call? Yeah.
1: If, if we had more people on call, that would, be great, you know, I would say specifically with um history in criminalistics, um, you know, actual forensic sciences or um in uh forensic pathology as well especially.
2: Danny, I find that so many experts are willing to donate their time for that, especially retired ones. They they the DNA doesn't change. They still want that.
3: And it can too. I, I I've talked to some um, some people who who are just that retired law enforcement or law enforcement related, and they retire and they they kind of miss the uh, miss the business. You know, they they a lot of them have done it for years, and suddenly they're like a fish out of water. And uh, you're right, Peter. So a lot of them the DNA is there, and they still like to get uh, get involved and. and and try to come up with solutions. So that's uh, 100% correct.
2: We have military intel. Um, We have uh, sometimes even within law enforcement, um, they'll moonlight. And the moonlighting is not for pay, but the moonlighting is to help with other cases. And they'll often uh, make sure they clear the permission from their own departments. Careful, but cultivating those good relationships within law enforcement and military intelligence is so important. Um, because we're humans and um, we may share the same goal, but sometimes uh, uh, when families get very upset and they're human too, um, it can become almost like a cold war. And usually mm-hmm. we need someone to step in the gap there and, and maybe guide the family on, uh, Jen said earlier about not taking it personally, for example. Um, we still are able to to bring people around to the point of working together. And I always find there's an abundance of experts and they're so good in their fields and they're so willing to help that working together becomes really quite enjoyable.
3: Very, very excellent, excellent points. And I hate to say this, but we're just about out of time here. Uh, Jen and Peter, thanks so much to both of you for being with us today and sharing your insights with us and also uh, thanks a million for what you're doing pro bono to try to help these families out these survivors and help them get justice and answers it's uh, it, it, you know I just can't thank you enough for that and uh, you know keep up keep up the good work and thanks also to our audience for listening and until next time stay healthy and stay safe uh-huh.